Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. On this week's archive edition, we explore the influence and legacy of artist, poet and musician, John Michel Basquiat. We were like... You know, outside of the mainstream culture, we were aware of that counterculture. We were actively looking to like just stir shit up in as many ways as we could. To coincide with Basquiat, Boom For Real in the Barbican Gallery, which ran from September 2017 to January 2018, Worldwide FM presents The Golden Griot, a soundtrack to the life and art of John michel Basquiat. Over to presenter and producer Leanne Wright. From Africa to Caribbean to Europe. You are turned into worldwide. 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 Jean-Michel Basquiat has become one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. Basquiat was a poet, an artist, musician, and a visual storyteller. He was like a human synthesizer, taking in information from the world around him, from books, TV, film, and music, then reprocessing and interpreting it on canvas. He rewrote history, often repositioning many of his African-American heroes. Music was something he referenced frequently in his work. Many of his paintings depict musicians, primarily musicians of color, players of jazz and blues, and he himself was in a band. During the next hour, we'll look at how music touched his life and his art. Basquiat was a music lover and collector. He had a vinyl collection of over 3,000 records, much of it jazz and blues. His tastes were broad and eclectic, from Bach to Bowie, Miles Davis to Public Image Limited, and he listened to music constantly while he painted, sometimes repeating the same song over and over. Music was a major influence in his work as well, often referencing jazz and blues artists, like in the piece Undiscovered Genius of the Mississippi Delta. Mm, 
Robert Johnson, like Basquiat, died at the age of 27. Basquiat was a restless youth. He left home at the age of 17, drawn to the East Village in New York, where an artistic community was beginning to bubble. Rent was cheap, and artists could afford to live and work. This scene in the late 70s, early 80s, made for a very fertile, creative environment. There were no boundaries for expression. You weren't limited to just being an artist or just being a musician. Different art forms and mediums were utilized. Experimentation was king. The punk and new wave scene was very open. Basquiat felt accepted and at home here and started to become a regular at parties and meet other key players. In 1979, heavily influenced by the no-wave movement and artists such as Steve Reich and John Cage, Basquiat formed a band that would eventually be called Grey. New York DJ and producer Justin Strauss describes the band. Grey's um, was a band that... Um consisted of John michel Basquiat, uh, Michael Holman, and Nick Taylor. Those were the, the three main guys that I knew. Um, and uh, they were, you know, around in the, in the New York scene in the early 80s. While John michel was pursuing his art, he also did this. And uh, it was like a jazzy kind of funk punk meets and it's hard to describe him gray looked amazing they were always very spiffy and dressed up in nice clothes and yeah it was definitely of that time where there were again no rules and it didn't really matter um but yeah they never john john michelle's art took over and he became so you know well known that he kind of yeah. gray sort of fell apart yeah. And didn't really 
continue or you know but um it's there and it was definitely a part of what made him and that scene special i think that he was you know able to do that and seriously it wasn't like a you know like a little you know he took it very serious As his art career famously began to skyrocket, Basquiat left the band shortly after initiating it. Michael Holman and Nick Taylor continue to perform as Gray to this day. Another artist and cultural provocateur on the downtown scene and very close friend of Jean-Michel was Fred Brathwaite, otherwise known as Fab Five Freddy. He was famously name-checked in Blondie's Rapture, and his influence on the genesis of hip-hop can still be felt today. Fab describes Jean-Michel when they first met at a loft party on Canal Street in 1979. Slim, brown-skinned, black man with a blonde mohawk. Well, he had like a sharp mohawk on the top of his head, and the back had hair, so it was very unique. Looked kind of maybe like some tribe that I had never seen before, but it was very like in the line of punk rock at that time, which was clearly what you know he was referencing, but very unusual for a person of color to be doing that because there weren't hardly any black people that were down with the punk scene or that kind of style. It was, we were like, you know, outside of the mainstream culture, we were aware of that, which we were counterculture. We were actively looking to like, just stir shit up in as many ways as we could. On the downtown scene in Manhattan, which is where I decided to go to find support for what I was doing, we were embraced by kind of people from the punk and new wave scenes that were pretty much outcast themselves in terms of how they were depicted, if you will, or looked at. And so, yeah, it was like an anything goes kind of, you know, let's just create. But nobody was trying to get rich Uh, or famous, if you will. We wanted to be known amongst our artistic, creative peers in the downtown world and downtown scene. Um, We were just excited to basically both be around people of color that were both on the same track. And so that was what drew us together. We had similar ideas. We both were trying to be artists and try to make things happen, trying to get into uh, um, a world where there weren't any people of color really doing it. And so that was the genesis of our connection and friendship. Like, that's what we did. Like, work, make art all day, dance to great music at night, <laughs> and get up and do it all over again. I just- 
Justin Strauss, whose career began in the early 80s with residencies at most of the influential clubs on the downtown scene, such as Mud Club, Area and Tunnel, describes the opening of the Mud Club, one of the first and most influential clubs to open downtown, and a hub and catalyst for artists during the early 80s. It was where, in 1981, Keith Haring invited Futura and Fab Five Freddy to curate a show called Beyond Words, which included their work as well as Basquiat's. It was a place where the whole widely innovative New York scene would converge. Well, you just had, um, you know, people like Jean-Michel Basquiat um, and Keith Haring, and who were, you know, artists or becoming artists, but were also interested in music and other things. And there was no rules. There was no one to say, oh, you're an artist, you just do that. But if you want to, you know, if they felt like making a record or doing a record cover or being in a in a performance piece, that all went together. There were no rules. It was just a free for all, basically, of of ideas. And you had a, it was an interesting time in the late 1970s, early 80s, because you had punk music, you had rap music starting, and you had disco and mutant disco, and these three kind of musical things just kind of you know just met sort of at this time and at the mud club and it was kind of like where it all just kind of took off it was the kind of epicenter of the downtown scene at that time for music for art for crazy everything it was a like a just a, a ball of inspiration and excitement There was nothing really going on downtown. It was like the first kind of thing that happened, um, kind of as a reaction to a lot of the big discos that were Studio 54, Xenon, all these places. So that seemed to be the meeting place for everyone at night. The openness and sense of experimentation extended to the music played at the clubs as well. Lucifer, son of the morning, I'm gonna chase you out of earth. And shirt and chase it down out of earth. I'm gonna put on an iron shirt and chase the devil out of earth. I'm gonna send him to outer space to find another race. I'm gonna send him to outer space to find another race. Satan is a evil lost man, but him can't choke it. So when I check him, my last in hand And if him slip a gun with him hand I'm gonna put on a iron shirt And chase Satan out of earth I'm gonna put on a iron shirt And chase the devil out of earth I'm gonna send him to outer space To find another race I'm gonna send him to outer space 
I mean, the Mud Club was just a mix of everything from, you know, rockabilly to dub to punk to new wave, which was, you know, also emerging. And so, you know, you'd hear, obviously there were some, you know, big records in New York that came from New York that influenced a lot of things such as ESG, Liquid Liquid, Bush Tetras, all the, you know, the whole downtown scene. And the early hip-hop stuff was also very important. And uh, so we had that and mixed in with whatever. I mean, it didn't really matter. I didn't know anything at that time about mixing records, beat matter. They didn't even have that kind of setup at the Mud Club. It was really just two turntables, not 1200s yeah. that had pitch control or anything. Yeah. It was just, It was just kind of telling a story whatever worked from you know a lot of James Brown was very uh, important at that time and uh, so yeah it was a it was a free-for-all really but and everyone danced to everything it wasn't like there was this genre separation it was everything worked which was kind of the idea of the mud club One of the next clubs to open was Area, which was more of a creative concept space than a club, a real playground for artists of all kinds. Area was kind of another groundbreaker as far as nightlife in New York City goes, and I don't think there's ever been another club like it. It's more like an art project. There's just an incredible amount of creativity involved in that place. So it was um, a very unique experience that... I've never kind of seen again. It was just perfect. Justin and Jean-Michel DJed at Area often on the same nights. He was playing in the back bar, which wasn't like, a, you know, a hardcore. It was more like a lounge thing. And he would be playing a lot of jazz, Miles Davis, abstract stuff, um, a lot of dub. So it was mostly a mixture of that, some soul stuff, some, you know, early hip hop. And yeah, it was just a kind of a disjointed but funky and and cool and chill and you know it was but a lot of jazz i remember some augustus pablo and some miles davis a lot of stuff i didn't even know you know which was always cool because uh you know i wasn't the biggest jazz person but you know turned on to a lot of just listening to a lot of cool free, you know, free jazz and stuff like that. And blues he would play and just, you know, original kind of rootsy music is what he was channeling, I think. Really know, and if you should ever leave. 
downtown clubs were pivotal in helping to support an explosion of creative output and what was to become one of the most influential cultural revolutions in recent history, a ripple effect that can still be felt around the world to this day. So the clubs were really where everything started, um, as far as I could see. From You know, it's like where I first got turned on to these people and, and met them and where they did early work, you know, and the owner, like he, uh, Steve Mass, just gave them a, you know, just Carte do Blanche. it. It was just an organic thing back then. It was very small. The scene was very small. Everyone knew each other. And like when you went into the mud club, it was like going into someone's living room, basically. An area was just kind of a more blown up version of that, um, you know, and with the celebrities. I mean, although we had... You know, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, all these people started coming to the Mud Club and Andy Warhol, of course. And Andy Warhol was kind of, you know, a huge influence to me. And he was uh, very uh, influential in the careers of John michel and Keith, you know, recognizing their brilliance early on and, and bridging those worlds of the established art world and the downtown scene. And he was, he could you know, mingle through both of them sure. and keep connect people. And it was very understated, but very cool like that. Sleeping Bag Records was a great example of the merging of some of these genres, like disco and the beginnings of hip-hop, electro, and house. Sleeping Bag Records, again, was started by Will Sokolov and Arthur Russell. So you had Arthur Russell doing left-field, mutant, crazy disco <laughs> tracks, and then they kind of Mantronics came into the fold and 
brought in the 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 hip hop the you know kind of electro hip hop that he was doing that was hugely influential to me as a as a producer and stuff and uh there was a, a record that Larry Levan remixed called Heartbeat by Tanya Gardner that was uh, huge in the Paradise Garage and huge in the Mud Club and uh, area. is like that's where records were broken yeah. like sleeping bag i mean will would bring me acetates of joyce like i'd be the first person to play a lot of these records and i had never even heard it before but i knew like if he's bringing me something it's gonna be great yeah. so i would put it on just unheard and i remember the first time he brought me joyce sims all in all and i was spinning at area and he's like but well, we just came from the mastering you should check this out Curtis Medtronic produced it. I'm like, okay. And I put it on and the place went nuts and it just became like an anthem. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Alongside the post-punk, new wave, and disco scenes, 
another new sound, and in fact, an entire culture was also emerging. Than a sucker could ever spend But I wouldn't give a sucker or a bum From the rock and not a dime till I made it again Everybody go, oh, tell, motel What you gonna do today? Cause I'm gonna get a fly girl Gonna get some spank and drive off In a death OJ, everybody go Basquiat's notable art-making began on the streets With friend Al Diaz Tagging poetic slogans under the name Samo Text remained a big part of his work on canvas his technique of sampling and scratching out words was very akin to techniques used in hip-hop production. He said of this technique, I cross out words so you will see them more. The fact that they are obscured makes you want to read them. Fab Five Freddy is undoubtedly one of the forefathers of hip-hop in that he helped germinate this revolutionary and all-encompassing culture. The early DJs, breakbeats, MCs, graffiti, breakdancing and fashion. He brought it all together in 1983 in the first ever hip-hop film, Wild Style. Going back to the late 60s, there were, the, the beginning of disco happened. There were black and Latin mobile DJs that took their sound systems from party to party, house to house or whatever. And the idea of keeping the music going continuously was this revelation. Like you'd use a mixer, you'd play one record and you'd mix into the next record. And then from that... Uh, idea of the mobile DJ guys in the Bronx did something different where they played and like these instrumental records with a certain attitude that became known as breakbeats and they began to play these records and then the idea of cutting and scratching developed as a kind of a way to remix the music live and direct manually and then guys would rap over that that later became known as hip-hop Fab had played Jean-Michel tapes recorded at some of the parties where DJs and MCs were beginning to experiment. He was instrumental in introducing Basquiat to hip-hop. 
I had examples of this, which I shared, explained to Jean, played some of these live party tapes. And he, of course, got into that. Soon after, the first rap records would begin to come out. Records by the Sugar Hill Gang, like, you know, the Treacherous Three, Funky Four Plus One. So he became a fan of that as well, because it was just great music. idea that I pitched to Charlie Ahern, who was the director and my co-collaborator on what became hip hop's first film, Wild Style. And my idea for that film that I took to him was to find a way that showed that these particular uh, different um, um, activities were connected. Graffiti writing, breakdancing, DJing, rapping. I felt that they were one thing. There was no connection of these things prior. So my idea was, I want to show that these things are one thing. I want to show that people that look like me are making a viable, interesting new culture. And I wanted to showcase it because people that were black and Latin and from the streets were only portrayed as criminals and, and, the, and the problems going on in the city at that time in the 70s. And my idea was to showcase these activities and to show people that we are artists. Fab explains why he feels hip-hop and its culture took off and became a worldwide phenomenon. I look at hip-hop culture when you get it right as like an algorithm that when executed will replicate itself in the same way. Like if you have the same kind of intention as a way for people that don't have a voice to speak up and to, and to stand up and say, well, here I am, baby, take a look at what I'm, who I am and what I'm doing, you know what I mean? People in other languages were able to pick that up just from the visuals that they were able, without understanding the word of English, to be like, yo, those guys look like us. I understand where they're coming from. They're from ghettos. They're pretty much poor people. And we, we could feel like what they're talking about, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, 
That alone was enough to spark a movement. Jean-Michel vibes off this fresh new sound and energy, so much so that he produced an early rap record called Beat Bop. He also created the cover art. It's now one of the holy grails of record collectors. Jean-Michel produced it, and that came out of me having introduced him to this music, and like I told you earlier, starting to hear the beginnings of rap records happening, and this was be beef. Before rap records had a lot of structure, so some of these early records like Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight, et cetera, et cetera, would go on for like seven, eight, 10, 12 minutes long. And John was like, shit, I can do this. And he, there was a young protege of mine, a guy by the name of Ramel Z. I introduced him to Jean-Michel because we were also looking to bring other people under, into this, um, into this space we had infiltrated so we didn't want people to think that we were the only two people from the graffiti street art world. Jean knew that Ramel Z could also rap. So he heard him rapping and he said, man, I'm going to book some studio time unless, you know, they put a track together and Ramel Z and this other kid named K-Rob, who was a young kid that used to hang around on the scene. And they both, you know, he took him into the studio and they made beatbox. Get funky, you play this, but that it don't addicts have to be abused. It's the same, what a thing to be a prostitute. Life is given to us just to do the right thing. Instead of that, we came a whole wall with big dope feet. Make you feel real bad every time I see another bone. Oh, brother sleeping on the street in the corner in the morning, every night and day. It's a pity, so I'm ready. People try to act gay. Everybody's turning crazy, so you better believe to do the right things. All soon you'll see. Life ain't no more joke, it's a serious thing. When you're dealing with the answers that we can't explain New York City is a place of mysteries Drug addicts, dope dealers, taking over the street That man's always saying, why the hell do we pay for what? Well, they break the laws and get a couple of days No sense trying to help, it's really no use Think the world's messing up, let me tell you the truth All rocks trying to pop with no respect Niggas waiting at the station for the big paycheck Homeboys going baking on Thursday night Girls waiting in the house for Mr. Right Kids going to school just to be your fool Never wanna learn to work Just to go to a beat And it's the funky beat And it's the funky beat And it's the funk, the funk And it's the funky beat Yeah This is the bellow they call the rail bell The rocks are with the rhythm that a shock is spell When the shake up kick the way you up in the morning Gotta rate with the rhythm like a number one groaning MC quick just to make it be the butter Shock with the rhythm I'm a number one undercover Bring it up, just shake it up, rodeo Bring it up, just shake it up, rodeo I'm the melody down with the funky sound That can make you break with my diamond studded crown Just for making you dip like a little bit of dive Like a rat, just for making you hide Rock on, until the break of dawn Just freak out, yeah, baby Just freak out, yeah, baby Like a little jelly bean, I'm a sweet like a candy cane to make you get down, this is number one stain on the train Just moving like a Stage all, just bringing up there, yeah, yeah. Stage all, like a roller coaster ride, that can make you bump. Just grooving with the rhythm as you shake your rock. You got the a rock, rock, you don't stop. The baby, y'all, you got it now, rock, you don't stop. Just hip hop. Beat bop is a play on what is undoubtedly Basquiat's favorite genre of music, bebop. <laughs> Thank you. 
Despite his wide and eclectic taste in music, jazz was his first love. And if jazz was his religion, then Charlie Parker was the high priest. Certainly he was fascinated by Charlie Parker. Many times he celebrated him in one of the collaborations between uh, Basquiat and the Warhol when they, they, did the, they redid the, the logo of the Arm and Hammer uh, baking soda. The, the transformation of the logo by Basquiat, it's, uh, the logo becomes a kind of, uh, of coin dedicated to Charlie Parker, which is the date of death. And, and Basquiat associated himself or projected himself not only into Charlie Parker, but also in other creators of new styles of music. Francesco Martinelli is a jazz historian and was a consultant and contributor to the Boom For Real exhibition at the Barbican. You know, the styles were in jazz, so we have a, a number of phases of styles. The styles were never de- defined by their creators. So there is no, non, no Charlie Parker, no Miles Davis, no Thelonious Monk that jumped up and said, now we are gonna to, we're going to play bebop from now on. So bebop uh, is a description that applies to a certain, certain style of jazz that emerged in the early 40s which was, in a way, a reaction to the major um, do- wide-dominated style of uh, swing. Swing is another style of jazz, mostly played for dance, mostly played for, for by big bands. And bebop emerged as a kind of, uh, of uh, extreme swing in the other direction of the pendulum. It was uh, played by small bands, by, by small groups, in the small clubs, not in big uh, ballrooms. It was very complex harmonically. It, was, it didn't have a very obvious rhythm. It was the, not uh, this, the, the definition of uh, underlying rhythm was not clear to the uh, lay listener. It was uh, a little bit of a, of a closed uh, trick of musicians playing uh, 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 new compositions or uh, using old composition in a, in a kind of... Uh, uh, contrafact way, as, as we say, in, in the history of jazz. Bebop broke away from the restraints of the traditional cornerstones of Western music, harmony, melody, and rhythmic progression. Like the beboppers, Basquiat destroyed the rule books, remixing and reinventing through his art. He created visual pauses and free space, appropriating standard structure, then deconstructing and improvising. Basquiat related to these young, vibrant iconoclasts who had broken the mold of tradition 
and use the power of their art form to create a new and unique voice for their people and establish viable artistic and historic references. I think Basquiat felt himself at odds with the general, you know, the general culture, the general civilization, in the same way that these people were at odds with, uh, uh, with theirs, with their time. And the, 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 continuous, the continuous critique by the bebop musicians of the uh, cultural model through, for example, the uh, employing quotations. Charlie Parker's solos employ a lot of use, a lot of quotations from other musical works, from opera, from popular songs, from other jazz pieces, in much in the same way that uh, Basquiat uses uh, uh, found material to just, just expose them and uh, change the meaning of them. So it's... Uh, it's a way of approaching popular culture that uh, resonates a lot with Pascal's words. For example, there is one famous quotation by Charlie Parker in a solo in a composition called Coco. At some point, he quotes uh, Popeye, the song of Popeye, the sailor man. And Pascal does the same uh, using the, the, the cartoons characters in his paintings. <laughs> Basquiat identified with the levels of celebrity and success these young black musicians had achieved, only to turn and still face racial discrimination. Successful jazz musicians uh, since Armstrong time, Armstrong, Ellington, uh, Miles, uh, all of them had to had to deal with these uh, represent, represent they, or they all had to represent themselves in a way which was not uh, causing some anxiety to great. White audiences. As uh, the successful artists, there were many artists that could not find a, a proper strate- strategy to deal with this. And I, I don't know how much Basquiat did, in fact, because uh, his, his personal his biography is such that he maybe didn't find a, a balance between all these, all these different factors. If he wanted to be a star, he became a star. At the same time, he was probably always under pressure for, from this uh, type of factors. Mm-hmm. 
Jean-Michel Basquiat did indeed shoot to superstardom in a few short years between 1980 and the year he died, 1988. He was the first artist of color to reach such dizzying heights, and to this day, he continues to inspire artists and musicians around the world. Playing us out is London saxophonist Shabaka Hutchins with his homage, A Portrait of Jean-Michel Basquiat.
The Golden Griot was produced, presented, and written by Leanne Wright and edited by George Haskell. Special thanks to Fred Brathwaite, Justin Strauss, Francesco Martinelli, and all the other participants involved in the making of this story. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds such as this and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out.